Welcome back to the multi-week series I've been doing called A Bible Prophecy Timeline, which is being posted as an audio podcast and as a video, both of which can be accessed at my website, BibleProphecyTalk.com. This episode, part seven, will touch on three bullet points on the timeline, the abomination of desolation, antichrist worship, and the great tribulation. As far as the timing of the abomination of desolation, there really is no debate on this one, at least among premillennials, as we all understand the abomination event to take place right in the middle of the 70th week of Daniel, specifically 1,260 days into the seven-year period. This can be determined a number of ways, but chief among them is with Daniel 9.27, but also see Daniel 11.45 through 12.1, Daniel 12.11, and Matthew 24.15. So instead of talking about the timing of the abomination of desolation here, I'm going to offer an interpretation of what is happening with that event. And I'm going to do so by reading from my book, False Christ, and adding in some new information here and there that I've been thinking about since I wrote it. So here we go. So when the Antichrist sits in this apparently rebuilt Jewish temple, the daily sacrifices that have apparently been going on for some time before this will stop. The fact that the daily sacrifices are stopped at this point is often used to promote the idea that the Antichrist will sit in the temple simply for the purpose of blaspheming the God of the Bible and disrespecting the temple, as if to say to everyone that the Jewish religion is untrue and that he is opposed to it. And the chief reason, and a good reason, to interpret it that way is because that was indeed the nature of the first abomination of desolation with Antiochus Epiphanes around 156 BC, which was a typological prefiguration of this event. We know that it was a typological prefiguration because Jesus in the Olivet Discourse says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of, by Daniel. So it had already happened in Daniel, but Jesus is telling us when you see it. So it's a future event and it's a past event. I would take exception to this idea that the actions of the Antichrist at the midpoint should be seen as antagonistic to Judaism and suggest that there are a number of clues in the Bible that suggest that the far fulfillment of this event with the Antichrist will be different in many ways and much more of an abomination than the near fulfillment was. The abomination of desolation will indeed be the height of blasphemy, but the reason it will be blasphemy is because the Antichrist's exaltation of himself as God is untrue. It was not blasphemy for Jesus to claim to be divine, as the Pharisees believed, because he was in fact God. However, it will be blasphemy and an abomination when the Antichrist makes the same claim. I suggest that the defiling of the temple occurs not because the Antichrist is claiming that God is bad or presenting any other type of overt verbal blasphemy in the temple, but because he claims to be the God of the Bible and the Messiah and accepts worship as such in the temple. I think that Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 is actually making that particular distinction. That is, that the Antichrist is claiming not only to be the God of the Bible, i.e. Yahweh, but he's also essentially outlawing all other religions of the world at that point. It says in verse 4, speaking of the Antichrist at the abomination of desolation, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So what he says the Antichrist does when he sits in the temple of God is exalt himself above two things, every so-called God and every object of worship. 
I think that when people casually read this, they think that the Antichrist is claiming to be higher than every god, including Yahweh. But the words that Paul is using here are quite unique. For example, this phrase, objects of worship, is actually a single word in the Greek, sebasma, and it's used only one other time in scripture. So that's pretty interesting because you would think objects of worship could just mean idol or something that's used probably thousands of times in scripture. But no, this is a unique word, one other time it's used, and that's in Acts 17. And it's used there to refer to pagan statues of all the various gods of the world and the Greek gods at Areopagus when Paul was visiting there and a missionary journey. So Sabasma, these gods of Greek culture at least, maybe the world, is one thing that Paul says the Antichrist will exalt himself above at the abomination event. The other thing that he will exalt himself over is every so-called god. Now that phrase is a combination of Greek words lego for to say and theos for god. And though the individual words are not unique, the combination, that phrase, is unique. As far as I can tell, and it's a little harder for me to research combinations of words, but as far as I can tell, it also is used only one other time in scripture, which is in 1 Corinthians 8. And I think Paul is there explaining essentially what he means by the phrase so-called God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods, that is our phrase Lego Theos, in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist." Some commentators think that Paul is just simply equating the so-called gods with the idols here, just saying that so-called gods are just fake gods in the way that idols are also fake. Though I tend to see him here saying that, yes, idols are obviously not real, they're made of wood and everything, but there are spiritual beings behind some of them in both heaven and earth that people worship. It really doesn't matter because in either case, the point I'm making here stands, which is that the phrase so-called gods and the word sabasma or objects of worship in 2 Thessalonians 2 are specific and unique terms that Paul uses in other places to refer to pagan gods. In addition to 2 Thessalonians 2 saying that the Antichrist is declaring himself to be higher than all pagan gods and pagan idols, it's also, I think, making it explicit that he is declaring himself to be Yahweh, the God of the Bible, which seems quite evident by the next phrase, which says, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, declaring himself to be God. So it's saying that in the taking of the seed of Yahweh, he is claiming to be Yahweh. I think this is as clear as day. Okay, moving on. This event and related scriptures show that the Antichrist is actually carrying his messianic theology of the first three and a half years to its logical conclusion with the abomination of desolation. He would not be disrespecting the Jewish religion. He would be attempting to be seen as fulfilling it. What I mean is that the two main actions that the Antichrist takes at the abomination event are in line with good theology. In fact, they're in line with Christian theology. Christians agree that the Messiah is also God and that animal sacrifices should be stopped when the Messiah comes. The idea that sacrifices stop when the Messiah comes is standard theology that can be demonstrated from the Old Testament. In fact, there are Jewish rabbinic traditions stating that when the Messiah comes, sacrifices must cease. 
In addition, even though most Jewish people would argue passionately that the Messiah, when he comes, will not be God, but rather only a man, they could no doubt be convinced of their error on this point by the same Old Testament scriptures that Christian evangelists use to convince Jewish people that the real Messiah, Jesus, was in fact God and sacrifices should cease for salvation. This would be especially true if the person showing them those scriptures was also able to call fire down from heaven, as the false prophet will be able to do. So I think that what the church father Ambrose said is true, quote, Antichrist will attempt to prove from scripture that he is the Christ. Further evidence that the Antichrist is actually reinforcing his claim to be the Messiah with the abomination event can be seen by the two other actions he takes at that point. Revelation 13, 14 through 15 says that the Antichrist sets up an image of himself. The people of the world will apparently be forced to worship this image under the penalty of death. The institution of this necessarily involves a worldwide or semi-worldwide pilgrimage to Jerusalem. If people are supposed to choose between worshiping the image or being killed by it, they must, it would seem, be physically present to do so. I would also argue that at least one way of worshiping will be offering gold, silver, and precious stones, Daniel 11:38 and Revelation 18:12, which further suggests that people who worship the Antichrist must go up to Jerusalem to do so. And I'll just interject here that in my book, Mystery Babylon, I think the entire Revelation 17 and 18 is the story of what happens when the entire world is forced to go to Jerusalem to worship the Antichrist and why the merchants get so rich is because everybody has to buy all this stuff to worship him. But the point is, all of this stuff that the Antichrist does is actually stuff in the Old Testament that is prophecies about what the Messiah will do. Isaiah 60, 3 through 22 and 18, 7, Zechariah 14, 16 through 18 say that when the Messiah comes, he will rule the world from the temple and cause all the nations to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to offer praise and worship. In other words, exactly what the Antichrist is said to do. I want to expand a little bit on this concept of the image of the beast. I think that the Antichrist sets up this image, and it's probably in the temple where he sets it up. There's a few things that suggest that, though it doesn't say it explicitly. And it may even be that the abomination event itself is not him sitting in the temple, but rather the image. It's not exactly clear in my mind. It could be both, actually. He, he initially sits in the temple himself, and then he sets up the image. In any case, I think the reason it's an image of himself, or it needs to be, is because he is still trying to make it look like he is fulfilling a very important prophecy, i.e. that the idea that the Messiah rules from the temple. Now, the real Messiah, Jesus, can probably rule from the temple for a thousand years or, or, or eternity or whatever, and also be other places because he actually is God and, you know, is God. But the Antichrist is, you know, while he's probably got supernatural stuff going on, he is not God and he's just a man. So I think the image is a way to sort of have your cake and eat it too, or at least that's my thoughts on it. The problem the Antichrist will face in attempting to falsify this prophecy is logistics. My guess is that he's not able or willing to sit in the temple to receive worship for extended periods of time. He may have other things to do, based on what the scripture says about his career after this event. So the image he sets up as a kind of stand-in for him. He gets to have all the legitimacy of seemingly fulfilling one of the most important aspects of messianic prophecy, while not actually having to physically be at the temple. I did want to insert here that over the years, I've come to believe that the image of the beast, in addition to that, 
is probably also a mechanism for Satan, that ancient serpent, the power behind the Antichrist throne, so to speak, to receive worship. It's it's really, this is all about Satan's plan anyway. It's all about how Satan getting the worship. So the image is just a proxy. It's getting the Antichrist out of the way just to sort of mainline the worship through that image. And that view is in part based on Revelation 13, 2 through 4. It's just suggestive when it says, speaking of the earth dwellers, they worship the dragon, that is Satan, for he had given his authority to the beast and they worship the beast. So the earth dwellers are seeming to worship Satan and they're worshiping the beast. It really never, you know, fleshes that out or what that means. But the fact that it's distinct means that, you know, Satan is, is attempting to get worship on his own here. And the fact that this is in the same context, when it sort of institutionalizes worship later on in the chapter, when the false prophet actually sets up the image of the beast and forces the world to worship it or die, um, you know, that's kind of in this same context. That's how the uh, worship is done, so to speak. Something else that happens at the abomination event that seems to support the idea that the Antichrist is bolstering his messianic claim and not diminishing it is the persecution that begins at that time, the greatest persecution of all time called the Great Tribulation. Before I get into this, I should explain that when I say that the Antichrist is bolstering his messianic claim at the midpoint, not diminishing it, what I'm doing is arguing against the idea that some people have this notion that the Antichrist is pretending to be a good guy for the first three and a half years, but it, at the midpoint, they interpret it as him taking off the mask and just saying whatever, you know, I'm the devil, worship me, you know. When I'm saying that, no, everything, including the midpoint, is a part of the deception. In fact, it may be, and I sort of lean towards the view that during the first half, when he's conquering and all the different things, he's probably, I don't know if he's saying that he's the Messiah yet. I think it's only after he actually does it, he actually conquers the enemies of Israel uh, and he raises from the dead and all that, that he actually says, hey, your suspicions are correct. I am the Messiah. Let's go ahead and start the Messianic age. And in my book, I'm about to talk about how even the Great Tribulation, the greatest persecution of all time, is actually a part of Messianic, not only tradition in rabbinic tradition, but also in the Bible. That is to say, and I go through this in my book, uh, false Christ about the extirpation, the belief that, you know, when the Messianic age starts, there needs to, to be a wiping out of people who won't go along with it. That's the rabbinic tradition, though there is a uh, similar thing in the Bible in which uh, uh, Jesus sort of uh, deals with the enemies of Israel as well. I think one way to see the persecution that begins after the abomination of desolation in a different light is to recognize that there must be a lot of people that go along with it, that don't see the abomination as blasphemy at all. In fact, most will see the Antichrist declaration to be God as scriptural truth. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 15, 21, that the abomination will spark the greatest persecution that the world will ever see, and that it's of the utmost importance for people to leave Jerusalem very quickly when they see it occur, if they want to escape that persecution. You can assume that it's the people that believe the Antichrist claim to be God that are the ones doing the actual persecuting at this time. I mean, the Antichrist is going to have soldiers doing this. He's not going to have 
you know, flying monkeys like the Wizard of Oz doing the greatest persecution of all time. And you can actually read in the Olivet Discourse in this context about the Great Tribulation, it shows the psychology of the people that are doing the persecuting. It often talks about how, you know, brothers are going to give up their brothers and mothers are going to give up their children. These are people that are true believers that really want to give up those that won't worship the Antichrist. They think that they're just the, oh my gosh, I can't believe you don't worship the Antichrist. He's obviously so great. That's the kind of psychology that's being discussed there. So who are these people that join the Antichrist side? Well, basically the whole world, right? I mean, uh, mostly Gentiles because most of the world is Gentiles, but we forget that the Bible implies that the vast majority of Jews will also follow the Antichrist. Zechariah 13, 8 through 9 says that only one third of national Israel will repent in the end times. And since we know that either you're in the repentant group or you're in the group that got the mark and or worship the beast, therefore it can reasonably be argued that the majority of the Jews, two-thirds of them, will be worshipers or at least on team Antichrist in the end times. I think an often overlooked picture of this apostate Jerusalem in the end times can be seen in Revelation 11, where when the Antichrist is able to kill the two witnesses, so the two witnesses have been prophesying for three and a half years, uh, they are finally killed by the Antichrist. And the people of Jerusalem are said to celebrate the deaths of the two witnesses and give gifts to one another. They're so happy that the two witnesses are are dead. Of course, they uh, resurrect three and a half days later, but uh, during that three days, they think it's all good. So you're looking at a Jerusalem that has rejected God's prophets, the two witnesses, and celebrated their death by the hands of the Antichrist. So it's not a good time spiritually in Jerusalem in the end times. So, the idea that the Antichrist will claim to be the Messiah is supported by everything we know about this abomination of desolation event. The Antichrist's declaration of himself as God, after a major victory over the enemies of Israel, the stopping of the daily sacrifices, the setting up of an image to be worshipped by the world, and the greatest persecution of all time that has its epicenter in Judea. Before I wrap up this episode, I wanted to touch on a relevant topic that I have not had an occasion to talk about before, which is a criticism of this view, which goes like this, that the word antichrist in the Greek means against Christ. And of course, Christ means Messiah in the Greek. So the argument goes that the Antichrist, the Antichrist, what we call the Antichrist, can't be pretending to be the Messiah because the word Antichrist means against Messiah. So I suppose he is against the idea of Messiahs or against uh, uh, Jesus in particular uh, as a Messiah in something to that effect. However, when you look at the lexicons for this Greek word, Antichrist, you find that it's a lot more nuanced. And I'm just going to read a few entries. The Lexham Bible Dictionary says the term Antichrist could mean either against Christ or in place of Christ, while the actual term Antichrist, which originates in the New Testament, appears infrequently in Scripture. The concept of the Antichrist appears numerous times in the New Testament because the broader concept appears more often than the specific term. Multiple perspectives have been presented. presented on Antichrist, leading to the understanding that the better phrase used to discuss this issue may be eschatological antagonist. Other lexicons sort of reflect that idea. For example, this one says, 
Antichrist, one who opposes Christ, implying the usurping of Christ and his position. So you see what it did there? It's usurping. It's yes, he's an opponent of Christ in that he is usurping Christ's position. Uh, another one, this is the pocket uh, lexicon to the Greek New Testament from Oxford. It says, Antichrist, either one who puts himself in the place of or the enemy opponent of the Messiah. And I don't even think it's an either or thing. I think the Antichrist does both when he shows up. He usurps the position of the real Messiah, even though he is not the real Messiah, and therefore makes himself an enemy of or an opponent of the Messiah because he does that, because he usurps that position. A couple more points on this. You have the biblical usage of Antichrist in 1 John. It's mentioned a few times there. And every one of those times essentially adds up to if a person denies that Jesus is the Messiah, then he is a general Antichrist. Because John was talking about how there are Antichrists at that time, mostly meaning false teachers that were teaching that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. But John also seems to equate that to the eschatological uh, Antichrist as well, who will in some way deny that Jesus was the Messiah, which I think is a probable uh, aspect of the Antichrist theology, namely that he'll say that Jesus didn't fulfill all the things that the Messiah was supposed to fulfill. Remember, the, the Messiah was supposed to uh, conquer the enemies of Israel and set up the kingdom in Israel, and Jesus didn't do that, so Jesus wasn't the Messiah. So I expect that to be in some way a part of the Antichrist theology, though I would say that it's difficult to know exactly what that will be. And finally, I would point to the Olivet Discourse, in which one could make the point that the main argument there is to warn people not to fall for it when a person pretending to be the Messiah shows up. Jesus starts out the whole message by saying, And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And then he later continues on that theme of not following false messiahs in verse 23, where it says, then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ or there he is, don't believe it for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders. So as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect see, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it for his lightning comes from the East and shines from uh, uh, as far as the West. So will the coming of the son of man be. So for those people that say that anti-Christ means against Christ only and can't mean in the place of or usurping the position of Christ, I would say, who are these guys in the Olivet Discourse? Because these are obviously people pretending to be the Christ. And we have very strong language saying, look, they're going to deceive many and lead many astray, even if possible, the elect. And don't go after them. Don't go in the wilderness. And all this language to say, don't go after people pretending to be Christ. So are these antichrists under their view? I guess they would have to say no. And real quick, I should argue that though a lot of this is in the plural, where it says many shall say, look, I'm the Christ and they're going to deceive many. Are many going to do that? Are there going to be many false prophets and many false Christs? Well, I think that it says, yes, there will be. But that doesn't mean that that won't culminate in the false Christ and the false prophet. In fact, I think that the parallels in Revelation 6 and Matthew 24 prove that at least one of these false Christs is the Antichrist and one of these false prophets is the false prophet. I would argue probably that this is explained by there, there being really high messianic expectations because of the events of the first three and a half years, the conquest of Israel's enemies, the restarting of the sacrifices, the rebuilding of the temple. 
it would be an obvious thing for people to you know show up and say, hey, I'm the Messiah, because they see the signs around them that Messiah must be here because all these things are supposed to happen. But it really does culminate in the one guy who's off conquering the enemies of Israel, raises from the dead, and sits in the temple. So after the midpoint, it sort of whittles all those competitors down to just one. All right, that is it for me this week. You can go to the website BibleProphecyTalk.com. You can also read all of my books for free at the website BibleProphecyText.com. And I'll see you next time.